Welcome to Life on Less Meds, a podcast that reveals the truth about drug side effects and the best strategies to manage them. And now your host, Dr. Yosef Wittering. Okay, hello everyone. I'm Dr. Yosef Wittering, and I'm here with Nicole Lamberson. She's a uh, she trained as a PA. Uh, she's been very active in the withdrawal space. She's done some. Uh, she's she's coached people. She's also served as the face of the medicating normal. Um, I guess marketing uh, marketing team doing lots of interviews on YouTube. Really, really cool stuff. You should definitely check it out. And um, today we're going to talk about the dangers of of rehabs. Um, it's something that um, I see frequently. You know, you know, either in my patients or on our social media channel, people talk about how they kind of got snared up in this mess of going into a rehab and uh, uh, sometimes with devastating consequences. So. I'm going to leave that hanger there, and uh, uh, I'm going to I'm going to turn it turn it over to you, Nicole, um, and just have you kind of give us your your download of uh, some of the problems with uh, rehabs uh, for coming off uh, psychiatric medications. Yeah. Okay. So, hi everybody. Thanks for having me, Yosef. Um, I went to a rehab center to get off of. Uh, benzodiazepines. I was also taking Ambien and um, Adderall. So I mentioned those specifically because rehab centers, when you check into them, they sort of put drugs into categories. So they'll say like, oh, these are the bad sort of addictive ones that they will rip you off of quickly. And then there's the other ones that they deem not so bad, like you know, gabapentinoids or um, antidepressants, they have no problem sort of, you know, leaving you on those medications. So I went in on six drugs and they deemed uh, the two benzos, the uh, Ambien Z drug and the Adderall to be the dangerous, you know, addictive ones. But I think, you know, some of the main problems with these rehab centers are, first of all, they can't they can't keep you for long enough to do what's necessary, which is a long, slow taper. And so you have probably, if you're lucky, 30 days, I think some of them are even shorter. Um, they're ridiculously expensive. Sometimes your insurance company will pay for some of it, but it's thousands and thousands of dollars essentially to be ripped off of uh, medication you've been taking for years and years in some cases in a very short you know, span of time. Are we talking like, of, like 60 grand expensive for 30 days or some of them? Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. it could be less 15 or 20,000, you know, and your mm -hmm. insurance may cover a portion mm -hmm. of it, depending on what, what insurance company you have. Um, <clears throat> but then also a lot of them are 12 step based programs, you know, they treat the, uh, problem of addiction or substance use disorder. And so if you show up at their door, I, I say like, they're a hammer and you're going to be a nail. You are going to be an addict or addicted in their mind. And they don't really see anything outside of that. There is no gray area for somebody who's physically dependent. And so mm -hmm. a lot of them, the, the treatment model is you are going to be ripped off medications that they deem addictive and they're going to put you in 12 step groups and that's how you're, you're going to spend your day. And could you explain the difference between, I guess, you know, first addiction and dependence, and then I guess how that leads to different treatment philosophies? Yeah. So physical dependence or physiological dependence can happen to anyone who is exposed to, a medication for, you know, specific prolonged period of time. Like in the case of benzodiazepines, even there's people who become physically dependent in a week or two, but sometimes mm -hmm. it takes months or years and your body physically or physiologically adapts, like neuro adapts to the presence of the chemical in your system. You don't have to abuse the drug or misuse the drug and you don't have to become addicted to it in order to develop physical dependence. In fact, people develop physical dependence to other medications like steroids and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, beta blocker blood pressure pills. Addiction is different in that it's, you know, a set of 
uh, behaviors, people who are diagnosable with addiction or substance use disorder typically have problems controlling use. They, you know, sometimes will go to the streets to find uh, the drug that they're looking for. Their life is typically in shambles. They have intense cravings. They, you know, Mm -hmm. sacrifice things in order to seek, you know, this high that they're, that they're after. Um, So it's two completely different phenomenon where it gets confusing is they can, they can happen together. So someone can be addicted and physically Mm -hmm. dependent at the same time because they've been exposing themselves to the substance while they were abusing it. But you can also be just solely physically dependent by your, by itself and have no addiction whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like you said, you know, maybe someone that's just taken some uh, temazepam, you know, once in the evening, every night to go to sleep, or even someone just taking an antidepressant. I mean, you, you know, there's no drug seeking behavior and taking Lexapro. You're not going to the street to get it. Um, And, uh, but when you stop it, you feel miserable and terrible uh, because of that dependence. So, that okay so that yeah i have i really have nothing to yep one more thing there's two other words that people kind of toss around too that you know i think some of the problem is people just start using the words interchangeably without even knowing what they mean and so like abuse and misuse are two other words as well so you can abuse a drug and not be addicted to it or physically dependent you can just abuse it which means you take it maybe once because you want to get high from something on the weekend that that's the definition of abuse mm-hmm. and not everyone who abuses drugs is addicted to them think of all mm-hmm. the kids in college, you know, not all those people are diagnosable with substance use disorder. Mm -hmm. And then misuse is just somebody who's using a drug therapeutically in a way that wasn't prescribed to them. So say your doctor gave you Ativan for sleep, but one random day you are having really bad anxiety in the afternoon or something, and you take that Ativan in the afternoon you're not taking it to get high. You're taking it for a therapeutic reason. That's considered misuse of a drug. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I think you've just explained those two things re- really well. Um, and maybe you could talk to us about uh, a little bit about how when you get misdiagnosed as kind of being a, an abuser because you're on a drug that has addictive potential. So, you know, things like stimulants or hypnotics or anxiety meds, you know, like the benzodiazepines or the um, or a- Ambien. Um, how, do, how does that lead to, I guess, how you're treated when you go in there? If you, you know, say have a physical dependence problem and you get labeled with uh, being an addict or being addicted to one of the medications. So in my experience, when I went to the rehab center, I didn't know anything, obviously, that I know now. All of it was sort of hindsight. I I remember before I went, though, I didn't I had like a bad feeling thinking, I don't understand how a 12 step rehab center is appropriate for someone who is just seeing a psychiatrist and who wants to come off their medication. It was very confusing to me. Like, does everybody who takes psychiatric drugs have to check into a 12-step rehab center like but at the same time I had read you know online some uh reports of people using phenobarbital or whatever to detox from benzodiazepine so I was like I don't know maybe this is just you know what people have to do so they're under care and they're monitored so they don't have a seizure but Uh, quickly when I got in there, you know, my dad's an anesthesiologist and he was at home researching and reading a lot too. And he was sending me emails saying, you aren't addicted, you're physically dependent. And he was giving me, you know, medical things to read about the differences between the two. And when I tried presenting that to the staff at this rehab center, it was like, they use all of the sort of addiction treatment model things against you. So it's like, oh, you're just in denial. You want, you're coming up with excuses. You just want to keep using drugs, you know? Um, 
it was very, I mean, that was, it was the whole model of it was everyone in there was an addict and that's just how you were treated. There were no, there was no space. Yeah. There's no discrimination. There was no nuance, I guess, in their thinking to say, you know, let's put these folks on this treatment path, you know, where we, I don't know, maybe we do some motivational interviewing. We put them through 12 step and that really helps them see the dangers of the, you know, their, their drug addiction and really motivates them to change because a lot of people with addiction problems, they may not want to change and they kind of get forced in there. Whereas yeah. with physical dependence, you know, I don't, I don't even know if there's a, like a good treatment protocol I've seen out there, but it would be just something like a very gradual patient led withdrawal with other symptomatic treatments to, to help people cope with the discomfort as they're coming down. But it sounds like everyone was just kind of, rammed into the same kind of uh conveyor belt production line and just like sent through the different steps yeah well and the other thing was they it it was very in my mind sort of once i figured out the differences between physical dependence and addiction just silly because they kept trying to put me on more medications you know these adjunctive medications to sort of cover up the benzo withdrawal that they were creating by ripping me off uh, what they did is they gave me like six days of a phenobarbital taper while they just stopped cold all of the benzos and and um, Adderall that I was taking. And then they started loading me up on really super high doses of gabapentin. So 1200 milligrams of gabapentin a day, which also causes physical dependence and withdrawal syndromes. And then they were trying to put me on antidepressants. Um, Seroquel, they gave me so much Seroquel that I passed out and busted my head and had to go to the emergency room when I was at the rehab center. So the whole thing was just like incredibly traumatic, uh, and just the wrong treatment model. I mean, even when I went to those 12 step meetings, because I had to, cause it was part of the program. And if you didn't go, then you were, not wanting to get better, not helping yourself, not being active in your recovery. These were the things they would accuse you of, you know, even though you're sick as hell. I was like pacing the halls with akathisia. My feet were bleeding. I was begging for help because I was so sick and desperate. And, um, you know, it was like, I would go to the the 12 step people and say like, this is my thing. And that the AA people would say, well, we're for alcohol. So you don't belong here. And then the NA people would say like, we don't think you belong here either. So it was like, you, it just was such an inappropriate model, you know, that I kind of was just like, I'm just going to get through this because I want off of the medication and then when the withdrawal became so severe that I started basically begging to go to the hospital or saying that I needed to reinstate the benzo, because by then I had found Ashton, I had I realized that you were supposed to taper. My asking to be reinstated to make the suffering stop was interpreted as drug seeking. You know, I wanted to get high again or abuse the the medication. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah. So, and that's the other thing they did. They sort of followed you around with urine drug screens all, all the time and forced you to pee in a cup. And my pupils were super dilated in withdrawal uh, and they stayed Mm -hmm. that way. And so they kept accusing me of using drugs, even though I would pee clean every single time, you know, they didn't understand the physiology of what was happening and what they had done to me. Jesus. Yeah. And, um, I know you mentioned, uh, I guess, how it's, uh, I mean, it's like madness, you know, it's, it's hypocritical in a way that you come in there with a physical dependence problem, you know, and I mean, your story, you, you went in there with three drug drugs, but it's very possible for someone to go in there with one drug, you know, they might, it not, might just be clonophin and they come out on Seroquel, on an antidepressant and, uh, and on like a whole bunch of gabapentin and, yeah. and they had physical dependence to come you know, to begin with, they just were having problems on the one drug and now they're out on three and they just don't get that, which is just, I mean, that's madness. Uh, yeah. But I guess it's it, it's got to do with the stigma that certain drugs have. And it's like certain drugs, because they do have, you know, that addiction potential, you know, some people truly become drug seeking on stimulants and sedatives and things like that. And so they go, oh, we just want you off the bad drugs. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, clearly, clearly that doesn't help someone whose goal is, you know, I just want to come off this one drug safely and ideally I'm not going to end up on a whole bunch of other drugs that could cause, you know, similar problems for me. Yeah. I mean, I've had the one thing that sort of, I think needs discussion is we do these educational events and things all the time about deprescribing and helping people off of um, psychiatric drugs when they are truly just physically dependent, which is kind of, you know, cut and dry. Like the patient just has to be outpatient and uh, come off of the medication on their own. And most of them are highly driven and motivated. They want off the drugs, but when I think a whole total separate presentation and maybe something you can address, Yosef, is like when someone has a true addiction problem to benzodiazepines or Ambien or something, how do you see that that model is any different? How do you treat somebody like that? Uh, who's who's addicted? I mean, I, I guess the, the, the first thing is you need to, to gauge where they are in their recognition because one of the hardest things is is, some, is treating someone that doesn't doesn't see the damage that addiction causes in their life. So, you want to get a gauge on on where that on where that is. You know, do you see it's a problem that you know your finances are dwindling? Do you see it's a problem that you're coming home and you're fighting with your you know with your spouse? You know, do you see it's a problem that you know you've had two DWIs in the last year and you've and you know and maybe next time you actually seriously hurt someone when you're doing this. Because there's so many, um, so much cognitive dif- uh, dissonance and defenses with these addiction problems. You know, people see themselves like, this is not that bad. You know, I saw my dad do this. You know, you know, my friends at work, they're kind of like this. I'm not a bad person. This is not bad. So you have to kind of, um, the battle with addiction for me is, is getting people to a point where they truly understand the seriousness of the problem. And then once they build that kind of motivation um then you start working on the practical ways to 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 break the triggers you know are you using because it's you know there's you know there's certain stresses in your life that trigger it are you using it because there's certain people you know that um that that cause you to do that and then it becomes just much more of a very nuanced psychological approach where you have to understand the person and what triggers it you can help them um in that way and then the rest of it's the physical dependence piece, just just like, um, you know, bringing someone down in a way that's not so disruptive to their life. You know, building up supports around them who can, you know, help them deal with the discomfort. Because, you know, the whole process of deep deep prescribing, it's you know, gradually lowering someone's dose to the point where, it, you know, those compensatory changes are now exposed. You know, for the sake of you know the, the hypnotics, now there's more excitation. But you don't completely drop them to the point where they have a seizure or they're debilitated and pacing around the place. You want them to have a nice, you know, a good level of discomfort and excitation, which they can tolerate. And then that's kind of, I mean, that's, the, I guess that's that skill of that flexible patient-led led approach where you, you want to not expose them to too much and they can come down safely. So, yeah, that's, that's sort of my overall download with the on the people who actually have these yeah, the, the kind of addiction, how I might walk them through it. Yeah. Yeah. I was just wondering, because I know some people yeah. are like, oh, you know, if you can't control your use, well, then you have to go to rehab. But I'm like, with benzos, it, that's just, I feel like if you're just ripping people off, even if they are truly addicted, it's just so torturous and inhumane. And I would think it would just drive them to get right back on or use again, because the withdrawal is so, so bad. But then the challenge is if they truly have addiction problems, how to get somebody to a place where they have control over their use enough to do a gradual taper over time, much more challenging than somebody who's just motivated and doesn't have addiction issues and they just want to come off of the medication. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Totally. And I, I mean, I'm working with someone who, who has, um, I guess, you know, and, and it's so blurry, you know, I, I, I have a patient right now who, who wants to come off benzodiazepines and they're on fairly high doses, but they've also were kind of forced onto a lower dose that resulted in a lot of inner dose withdrawal, um, discomfort, and they were using a lot of alcohol to cope with that. You know, they were falling back on that as a strategy and, when I'm working with this 
person you know you can't just force them through it's almost like we're going up on the benzo to cut out the alcohol use and then when that stabilizes we're going to come down slowly because you know alcohol is i mean it's 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 such an unstable way to kind of treat dependence and 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 i I guess essentially maybe even bring yourself down from from a different drug so yeah yeah I want to say something else about Mm -hmm. language quickly, just because it always comes up, um, you know, people are like, oh, it's just semantics, or um, sometimes people take offense that we sort of define the terms and and it, maybe it comes across like we're trying to say people who are physically dependent are better than in some way, people who are uh, addicted or have a substance use disorder. And I want to make clear that that's not the case at all. I don't, separate the terms or define them differently because I look down on people who have addiction problems or, you know, but the people who aren't physically dependent shouldn't be subjected. I mean, who are truly physically dependent shouldn't be subjected to the stigma of addiction, even though we don't think addicts should be stigmatized either. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, but they haven't there. It feels really awful when you are not guilty of something to be accused of it and to be treated in that way when you haven't done that, you know, when you when that's not really what's happening. And then also, I just remember, like, if we want to reach people with this message, right, and tell them that benzodiazepines can cause this physical dependence, that antidepressants can cause this. If we keep saying they're addictive or we keep saying that people become addicted, I think we're going to miss a big group of people with the warning because I remember laying in bed every night, taking my Ambien or swallowing my Clonopin and reading that the drugs had addiction potential or they were addictive and thinking that doesn't apply to me because I'm not abusing them. I'm not using them in a way that in my mind, I had defined addicts abuse drugs. And so um, do you want me to keep going or? <laughs> okay. Sorry, sorry. My dog, my, my dog is barking at someone outside. But oh, no, it's okay. Yeah. Please pick yes. up that thread. Yeah. Sure. So I, because of the terminology that was used, you know, benzos can be addictive. I, no one ever explained to me that I could become physically dependent on them just by taking them every day. Like my doctor had told me, they didn't explain that I was at risk just using them as directed. And so I wasn't aware that I was at risk for anything. And I think if we're going to truly inform people, um, you know, with informed consent, like everyone talks about, everyone deserves, we have to sit down and we have to give them definitions and tell them these are the possible outcomes you know Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean i totally get where you would come from i mean if i um went you know if i was taking a drug as prescribed you know and then all of a sudden people are starting to say oh you need to go to 12 step and 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 you know and this and that and you need to kind of acknowledge that you have a problem you're like well hang on a second you know you know, my doctor put me on clonopin for IBS or something like that. <laughs> you know, this yeah. does, this does not fit with me. You know, um, well, and support is so important when you are mm-hmm. coming off of psychiatric drugs. You need friends around you. You need your family behind you. You need people advocating for you. You need your doctors to continue to prescribe the medication so that you can come off in a you know slow way. And if everyone's confused and thinks that you are addicted to something, think about how people, family systems are trained to treat true addicts, right? They say like, stop enabling them. Don't, you know, help them get them out of the house. And so, you know, raise their bottom and make their life, you know, essentially fall apart so that they have to get help. Well, apply that to somebody who's truly physically dependent and they need support. They're in horrible, you know, benzodiazepine withdrawal and your family is telling you like, you can't stay here if you don't stop taking the medicine right away. Or the doctor who thinks you're addicted when you're physically dependent, they are not going to keep writing you for, Valium to do a taper if they think you're addicted or, you know, abusing the medication. 
Totally. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad that you went there because it, you know, this is something that I've also heard a lot is, is, you know, you know, a, a patient will have a, you know, they'll start to develop their inner dose withdrawal or they'll have problems with the drug and then they'll go to the detox center because, you know, when things get that bad, you know, family members are like, I don't know what to do, you know, detox center, we need to get you off this. That sounds right to me. Like, let's go talk to the experts. And then it's almost, you know, they get given the wrong information, just like you said, and then it drives a massive wedge into the family where, um, you know, I won't repeat it, kind of just like you said, you know, it separates them. They start saying those same things that are, are very bad. You know, you have addiction problems. You know, I'm not going to help you go and, you know, find additional medication to do this taper. You just need to stop. You know, you'll be better soon. Just, you know, and and you're just kind of left there suffering. And it's hugely traumatic for, for the person who is suffering and then has their support system abandon them. Um, yeah. And, you know, not just kind of abandon them, but it's like kind of start name calling them and, you know, saying you're an addict, you know, have these problems and just can't you see um, it's it's yeah. it's awful. Never mind the long term repercussions. I mean, it doesn't happen to everybody. I have met people who have cold turkeyed and they got lucky and they recovered quickly or within, you know, a couple of years. So thank goodness for that. But there are people and I think, I mean, we don't have science to back it up, but we have plenty of anecdote that the people who are ripped off quickly or cold turkey are the ones who go on to have not only the severe, severe symptoms, but the protracted, you know, the long, what we're calling bind now that goes on and on and on. I mean, I detoxed on October 10th of 2010. I'll never forget the day because it was the second stupidest decision of my life, second only to taking this stuff in the first place. And it is 2023 and I still have symptoms from being ripped off in that manner. So it's a huge risk um, to do it mm -hmm. and it causes devastating outcomes to people's lives. So... Yeah, yeah. Um, I think one thing that, you know, that we should talk about, you know, I'm going to pick up on that thread of what happened happened to you soon, because I think that's uh, a really interesting and helpful story. Uh, but the, the, yeah, the, the idea of going, you know, in, in a detox, and I know you've, you've, you've been there, I mean, they, they put you, like they did it in six, I mean, they did it in six days, like you mm -hmm. said, but was there an option? Did you have any say in it? Could you have done it in 30 days? Could you have elected to do it longer? Or they just came in and they were just like, six days, we're doing it. What, what that happened? That was it. I mean, I didn't even see a doctor. It was like they just had this protocol of this is what we do and you get six days of phenobarbital and that's it. I mean, I was begging for help and then they were giving me, like I said, more psychiatric medications that as you know, and some people listening know, once your nervous system is sort of derailed by a withdrawal syndrome, for whatever reason, and Ashton talks about it in her manual too, some of us start having adverse reactions to all kinds of things. And I was having adverse reactions to the psychiatric medications they were trying to put me on. But they didn't believe that they didn't want to hear that you know when i would say this effectsor you gave me is like making my skin burn terribly mm -hmm. or ramping up the akathisia they would say you don't want to get better you're not treating yourself you're not following doctor's orders you know so mm -hmm. the whole thing was just it was just traumatic and awful um and I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. And another thing mm -hmm. that I found very, <laughs> it, the it was just such a chaotic, confusing time. Because imagine, all right, you have akathisia, you're in this horrific withdrawal syndrome, you're hysterical, you feel like no one's helping you or listening to you. The rehab people are screaming at me, telling me I'm a drug addict, and I'm refusing to accept, you know, that and I'm in denial. I get out of that place and we decide to go back to the prescribing psychiatrist who had been seeing me for five years mm. to explain to her 
what was happening to me. And she said the reason I was sick is because I was mentally ill and I had stopped taking my medication. (laughs) So it was like, everyone was the same. Everyone has this hammer and you're a nail. The psychiatrist saw me as a psych patient that needed my medicine. It wasn't withdrawal. It was the return of my condition. And the rehab people saw me as an addict and I, I shouldn't be taking the drugs. Two completely different diagnoses from two completely different places. So one told me I need to be off. The other, I need to go back on everything. But nobody said it's physical dependence and withdrawal and you're in a horrible withdrawal syndrome. We need to put you back on the med, stabilize you and bring you off in a sane, slow, controlled taper. Yeah. I think, uh, yeah, I'm glad you went there because, you know, the next question, you know, someone might have is why is that the case? And, and, you know, I have my own thoughts about it, but, you know, in, in, in medicine, there are certain ideas that get a lot of traction and they get a lot of promotion. You know, one of them is like, you have a DSM condition, you know, you have a, you know, severe anxiety, bipolar type, you know, illness. I, I, I imagine you probably got diagnosed with some kind of bipolar illness or, or something along those lines. Like that's, I don't know. Seems, I don't know what even, yeah. What I that, had, that's like the most started- common yeah. with stress at work. That was my presenting complaint. Yeah. And I, I turned into a mental patient over time because of the adverse effects of polypharmacy made me sick. I mean, it made me have psychiatric symptoms. So, yeah. And and so I guess the next thing is like, why does no one re- you know realize that you can have these horrific problem, you know, problems with physical dependence. And when you're taken off the medications too quickly, it can cause, uh, you know, prolonged, I, I guess, neurological damage that can manifest in, you know, things that don't even look like psychiatric symptoms, you know, anymore, you know, physical pain, sensory problems. And anyway, the way, the way I end up seeing it is, you know, personally in my training and then as I kind of went and did a lot of things in clinical research and at the FDA as well was um, it's, it's, it's not a promoted idea you know it's not a promoted idea that normal psychiatric drugs which are you know safe and effective you know can cause these horrific problems where you need to go to an ultra specialist you know to kind of bring you off these problems because if that was a promoted idea um it's scary for people and it would lead to less prescriptions and you have these groups out there who have um who are incentivized to almost not not bring it up and so the doctors, you know, they don't even think about this as being a problems. And, and, you know, in the rehab, they're just like, it's addiction, it's addiction, it's addiction. And so it's just this giant blank spot where no one kind of in the mainstream, you know, psychiatric group wants to talk about it because, you know, if you talk about these problems, you're one, you're stigmatizing medication used, you're trying to scare people away and they start name calling and, you know, you have an agenda. You have an yeah. agenda by promoting these you're ideas. Anti-psychiatry or you're anti-psychiatry. Yeah. You're just saying you're trying to say people should just, you know, pull them up by their bootstraps because that's just how you feel inside and you think that that ought to be the right way for people. So that's kind of how I've seen people kind of dismiss, you know, what what is really a serious problem with all psychiatric drugs. I mean, benzos, benzos are interesting because they have traction as being bad drugs and they're kind of talked about in the labeling, but the other the other issue, which is just a nightmare, is the antidepressants. I mean, where, where people are having, at least from me and my p- perspective, the exact same problems with benzos, except that they're even, you know, I, I almost feel like they get they get less sympathy because there's less recognition that they can cause they can cause problems. Um, so, yeah, yeah, that's that's how you end up in a situation like this. I mean, there's there's a kind of a whole complex of scientific publications from you know, people in universities and drug companies sponsoring certain types of research that just drowns out, you know, these inconvenient problems with the drugs. Um, you know, there's no there's no group out there. Well, maybe BIC is kind of helping and some of the other ones, but you know, the you know, the war chest of resources that BIC has to get this message out there, you know, compared to like the collective um sales and marketing team from from a pharmaceutical company that's publishing and things like that it's like you know it's less than 0.1 percent you know the you know the 
the, the size of the megaphone that you guys have in terms of trying to get it out. And so, yeah, it, yeah, it, it it's missed and it, it happens every day. Yeah. Well, I know you were encouraged by the black box warning or the second one anyways, or the updated one uh, about benzodiazepine physical dependence and um, withdrawal and protracted withdrawal. But how much do you think doctors and patients are really going to read that? And how much zero. do you think they're going to understand the concepts? Yeah. No, it's, it's going to be like zero because it is, um, I mean, doctors don't read labels. Um, I was never taught to read a label or where to find one. My wife was never. I'm going to ask you in your PA training, do they teach you how to look up a drug label? Uh, no. And clearly I didn't know yeah. the difference between physical dependence or addiction and addiction because yeah. I wouldn't be sitting here if, yeah. I mean, I fell for the trap, you know, I didn't know any better either. So, yeah. And, yeah. and so, yeah, no, no one reads the labels. It was only something that I learned how to do because I had to write drug labels at the FDA. And then also when I was, uh, you know, I am kind of in the pharmaceutical industry doing this. Um, so it's even, you know, it's useful in the sense of uh, it gives credibility to the, you know, with benzos particularly that there can be this um, bind problem with them and, you know, we can go and win a lawsuit with it or, or settle favorably. So that's really useful. But when, you know, when a drug company or when uh, a regulator wants to get the message out about a new problem, they have several different risk mitigation mechanisms. Probably the the most, um, um, the easiest is to, oh, we'll just update the labeling. You know, this is designed for physicians. They'll find it, you know. Mm-hmm. But then there's other things. I mean, you can do dear healthcare letters, and that's where you would go to, like, the American Academy of Psychiatrists and the American Academy of Family Practitioners, and you could say, you know, you know, excuse me, you know, could you please give me the list of all of your members? I'm going to send out a flyer to them. You know, drug company could do this or the FDA could do it. And then you could get it out that way. And then you open your mail and you see, okay, all right, this is interesting. It's on my radar. Um, so there's that. But then there can also be plans where you're saying, well, I'm going to go to the main conference for psychiatry, the I can't remember the name of it, the APA like conference and we're going to do a symposia. We'll have a booth there. We'll talk about this new problem. But to my understanding, none of these things are done were done for the protracted withdrawal injury. It got the kind of the most lenient type of risk mitigation thing out there where they just updated the label that no one actually reads. So uh, yeah, I suspect that it's not really going to educate people. Yeah. Yeah. which is pretty bleak. Um, I think um, I think things like social media can. Uh, um, uh, I think that, you know, what the Benzodiazepine Alliance and what BIC is doing and kind of getting out there and talking about these things, I think it's going to be more grassroots and organic. And isn't that crazy, you know, that you have all of these people volunteering to do a risk mitigation plan when, like, I guess you have these manufacturers of benzodiazepines who you know have all of the resources and they're and they're not doing it, and you have just volunteers trying to like actually do the risk mitigation plan for the company, you know, all on their own time. Uh, yeah. That's that's nuts. Yeah, I don't know that anybody know. I mean, the only reason in my mind that anyone would be able to or be willing to do this on their own time, just volunteers, because we understand how bad it is. You know, I don't know that there's a way. I've thought a million times, like, how do I put this into words to explain to somebody how horrific being ripped off of benzodiazepines feels? And I've never been able to find the words because what happened to me in that place was so far beyond the realm of normal human experience that I can't even like give texture to it to someone who's not felt it before. But that's why I do what I do and so passionately because I know how bad it is and I want people to be warned in a way that I wasn't, you know? Well, I think this is a nice segue to kind of go back to what happened happened to you because, um, and I know you've shied away from talking about your experience because you don't want to upset people because you still have um, pretty significant sy- symptoms sometimes. Um but I think you have a lot to teach in terms of um, enduring suffering while being motivated 
uh, you know, and well, I guess what I'm trying to say is the um, how meaning, you know, in in getting this this content out there and helping people avoid this problem has allowed you to in, in, endure your suffering. So maybe you could, I, I know it's difficult to explain, but it could also be helpful for some people who also have severe symptoms. Look, you know, this is 10 years down the track longer than that, right? You know, or new yeah. about then. What, what, what's a day like for you today um, or on average? So part of the reason I got so involved in activism and stuff is because, I mean, just imagine 10 plus years of doing nothing. You know, I'm not somebody who did nothing well before I got sick. And I was even worse at doing nothing when I became sick. So it was something that gave me purpose. I mean, I knew I was going to be sick for a while based on the severity of my symptoms. And so I had to have something to do. And one of the biggest uh, ways of coping that I noticed worked for me was distraction. So um, if I was helping somebody else, even though I was so ill and suffering myself, it got me out of my head for a while. Like I could pay attention to somebody else's problems or I could encourage them to hang on or, you know, because I went to PA school, I knew a lot about medicines and where to find things in the literature and stuff like that. So I could help people in that way, directing them towards resources or even somebody who couldn't do math for their own taper. Like I could still do math or understand what dosages meant and that kind of thing, you know? Um, but today I guess, you know, I I'm definitely things have improved in the time since I came off. I mean, I was bed bound in the beginning. I had bed sores at one time. I had mats in my hair, like dreadlocks because I stayed in bed for so long. I was that sick from this. Um, and I didn't move. I mean, I never, I wasn't able to exercise. I couldn't tolerate anything. I became incredibly skinny. I was like 90 something pounds at my sickest. Um, and then just slowly over time, like I started to get certain things back. So now I can walk, um, and I do it every day, like four to six miles, sometimes longer. Um, and that I built up to, you know, over a long period of time, cause I was so deconditioned from being sick, you know, severely sick for so long. Uh, I mean, I cook myself good meals. I'm on the keto diet uh, because I think taking care of my overall health is super important to trying to heal. I work for medicating normal. So um, doing all kinds of tasks to get the film out and seen. Um, I still help people in a small little support group on Facebook that I run. Um, and you know, I can now I can go out to lunch sometimes with friends that I've had for, you know, my lifetime, people that I feel safe and comfortable with who understand what's happened to me and who are supportive. Um, I can, you know, go walking my parents' dogs. I can go hang out with my family. So my world has expanded over time. I'm not that bedbound, sick person anymore, but I still. I get super drained easily. So I have to sort of plan out my day like, okay, I'm going to do this one thing. And that's, that's the day, you know, if I'm going out to lunch with somebody, I don't plan anything else. Um, sometimes in the middle of the day, I have to lay down and rest or, uh, you know, just take a break because I feel incredibly exhausted. I still get overwhelmed a lot. And there's still times where I make a plan and I have to cancel because, I am overcome with severe panic or anxiety and I just, I cannot go. Uh, one of the things I haven't really gotten back is my ability to just go anywhere. You know, I have like this radius that feels safe and comfortable to me, but if you ask me to go outside of it, if you ask me to drive an hour away to some location, I probably couldn't do that or it would be incredibly panic inducing for me. So it's just baby steps of sort of clawing my way back and hoping that, you know, with more time, my nervous system is going to figure it out. And I don't, I don't know what's going to happen in the end, but I just have to sort of keep going. And the trajectory has been in the right direction so far. So I just keep hoping that, you know, 
it, it's capable of undoing the damage. Yeah, that I mean, that's and that's kind of what I uh, tell my patients as well. I mean, if the trajectory is towards improvement, I mean, I, I don't see a reason why it wouldn't continue to gradually improve. I mean, it may just take a while, but um, another thing is it gets easier, right? You know, su suffering now is easier than it was when you were just in bed, you know, all the time. I mean, there's more things that you can distract yourself with, you know, even though you have a lot of symptoms. I mean, you're, you're helping people, you're engaged with the community, all of those types of things. So it's, yeah. I mean, that's another I will thing. Put a little asterisk next yeah. to it gets easier though, as it's longer, yeah. you also become more worn down over time. So like, yeah you're just exhausted. You know, you just want it to end so bad. So it takes its its toll on you. And so things maybe that super severe symptoms that I could endure in the beginning, because I was fresh at this, if, if I get like a bad wave or something now, it really feels like, oh, I can't, I can't do this anymore. You know, even though I do, I get through yeah. it, but it's, it's harder the longer you go. So yeah. yeah, yeah, the the frustration I, I I imagine, and then also being bet you know somewhat better, and then being thrown back into a yeah. state of misery for a couple of months is. You just desperately want your life back. That's it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what's your message for people out there who who maybe have um, you know might might be in a similar boat? You know, it's been it's been five years, you know, and they're still having. Uh, I guess what I'll say, life disruptive symptoms. I mean, well, yeah. What would your message be to, to those folks? I mean, I interviewed Matt Samet the other day and I, I thought it was kind of sad and depressing that his message to people was don't kill yourself. Like that's our message when we're trying to inspire people, you know, it's pretty yeah. sad, but don't kill yourself. You know, it's a good message. Hang on. I, I'm not actively suicidal at this point, you know, in my recovery, like I said, I'm getting things back that were stolen from me. And I think, you know, I have hope. I don't think I would keep going if I didn't have hope or believe that it was possible to reverse this. And I've been in this community since 2010, and I've seen countless, countless people get better the not, you know, the people who go on as long as me or who has stuff who suffer as long as I have are there's I can count them on my hands, you know, that mm -hmm. I know. And the ones that I've watched come and go and disappear. And all the time that I've been here are the countless, countless, countless thousands, the majority. I've made so many friends who are just gone back living their lives, and they don't even think about withdrawal anymore. They're happy and they're just people living and this is just something that happened to them. So I would say the chances that you're going to get better are huge, you know? Um, and I've also met people that were in extreme, extreme distress. And then all of a sudden like this, they suddenly came out of it and things started improving at rapid speed. And they say to me, if I would have given up right before that happened, I would have had zero indication that it was coming because it wasn't like there was a sign or anything. It just happened. And so you've got to just hang in there for the good stuff, you know? Yeah, Chris is, I mean, Chris Page, who I'm actually talking to later on today. I mean, uh, you know, when I last interviewed, you know, he talks about how suicidal he was and walking around holding a gun for, you know, yeah you know, not just once, but several times. And now you look at him and he's like, I'm in love. I'm, you know, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm in a great relationship. And it's, it's, yeah. um, I, I think he really, his story really speaks to that. Yeah. I was with him for the entirety of his withdrawal. Um, and he was a mess. I mean, a complete mess. And I have just watched him over time, just blossom yeah. into this, you know, he just went on a cruise and this mm -hmm. is a guy that used to call me, pacing and screaming into the phone at like a voice decibel of a woman. He was so distressed, like, you know, just screaming, begging mm -hmm. for help. So people do get better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that, uh, I mean, on that, I think, um, 
I guess, you know, kind of interesting picture of Chris screaming into the phone, but also kind of motivational <laughs> I hope he doesn't point. hate me for saying that, but we laugh about it now, <laughs> yeah. if that means yeah. anything. You know, it's one of the yeah. jokes that we have between yeah. each other. So <laughs> you, if you get to a point you can laugh at this, you're doing pretty well, you know. Yeah, that that does sound, that, yeah, that sounds nice. Yeah. Um, gosh, any anything else that you want to share, Nicole, before we wrap? I think we've gone for a good amount of time. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about rehabs and detoxes. So I just want to say before we close, if you're in a position where you're in trouble with these medications, you feel like they've turned on you or you're having severe interdose withdrawal or you're tolerant. I think the thing I wish I would have done in hindsight, because I was having all those problems, that's why I checked into a detox center because I freaked out and thought, I got to get off of these things. Look at what they're doing to me. If I had it to do all over again, I would say, don't panic, calm down, you know, get yourself educated, learn about what these things are. And instead of checking into a rehab center or a detox, that's probably going to make your situation exponentially worse, find yourself a physician who's willing to work with you and understand the concepts. You can get yourself comfortable before starting a taper. In many cases, you can fix the interdose withdrawal. You can fix the tolerance. You can find a doctor who will, you know, space your drug out so that you're not going in and out of withdrawal all day long. And then go on and do a, t- a taper plan that is controlled by you and that, you know, you don't have to get so sick that you're bed bound and you lose everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Good message. And and the website for that is, or what you would search in Google would be, uh, the Benzo Information Coalition. Find a doctor. And uh, from my perspective, that's that's the best resource for finding uh, physicians um, who are wise to this and could help you with that. And don't toss out the idea that because someone's not on that list, they can't learn. I mean, my doctor, she didn't know anything Mm -hmm. about this, but she was just compassionate and kind. And she listened to me and she read the Ashton manual. And then she became somebody that knew how to help people in my condition. So you can, some doctors are teachable. They're not all, you know, horrible and don't want to listen. That's true. Well, great. Nicole, it's, it's, it's been a pleasure having you here. I can already think of a million other things I want to ask you about, um, but uh, we'll, we'll save it for another time. And I just want to say thank you for coming on, talking about detoxes and also sharing your story. I think it's, I, I think it's an inspiration. Uh, so yeah, thanks again. Sure. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you want to see the full video interview, we also post these to YouTube. Just go to Wittering Psychiatry on YouTube to find those. You'll also find several YouTube exclusive videos from Drs. Yosef and Marissa posted several times a week. Finally, if you need help with your drug taper, getting a second opinion, or managing your post-acute withdrawal, come visit us at WittduringPsychiatry.com. Our sole focus is on helping patients regain control of their lives and achieve optimal mental health on as little medications as possible.